Practice out of the headphones with a metronome, I would say first. I feel like I'm in a submarine when I'm recording because there's like this sonar beat going on. I can't hear anything around me, so I'm not able to play on the tones of the room or structure. I just think it's another beast than being a performer. As much experience as you can get before you spend money on going in a big studio, the better. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. Sending your music to be mastered can be scary, but sending your music to a total stranger for mastering can be really scary. Chris Graham is a Billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer with thousands of credits and knows how to make your record sound fantastic. But more importantly, he understands that there is one person that really knows what a great record sounds like, and that's you, rock stars. So if you're thinking about hiring professional mastering but not sure if it's right for you, go to chrisgrammastering.com and get a free sample mastering of your song. Go find out just how great your record can sound at chrisgrammastering.com. Just click the link included in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Dana Manning, a songwriter, musician turned producer when she was just 17 years old, producing Sean Ono Lennon on her track My Kind for her debut record, Volume One, on EMI. From there, her recording opportunities led her to work or work around the likes of Jim Scott, Rick Rubin, Don Was, Tom Lord Algie, and Dave Kalmuski, where she learned as much as she could about recording and production in the studio. Dana has produced her own record, Folkio, and her folk trio, Trent Severn, as well as producing and engineering several national television commercials and branding an entire radio station, all from her home studio in Ontario, Canada. Dana firmly believes that production starts with a great song, so as a writer, she finds producing a natural fit. I met Dana at Summer NAM in Nashville this summer, 2017, thanks to Dave Kalmuski at Addiction Studios. And I'm thrilled not only to have Dana joining us on the podcast today, but to have our first woman as a guest on Recording Studio Rockstars, which is really awesome. Please welcome Dana Manning to the podcast. Dana, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Or, or should I say you're ready to folk rock? I'm ready to folk rock always. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I hope you don't mind holding the mantle, if that's the right expression, of being the first you know, woman on the podcast, but that is really awesome. I can't believe it's taken us over a hundred episodes to, to get to this point. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm happy to hold that title. Well, so, um, you know, I've given your introduction, much of which I borrowed from your own bio, but fill in the gaps for us and tell us a story of how you got started in recording. I was really lucky. When I was a teenager, I, I wrote a bunch of songs I thought my four-bedroom walls would hear, and uh, I had an opportunity 
to kind of, I, I lived two hours from Toronto and I was babysitting a young kid whose parents unfortunately split up. So I was hired to take this child on the train to visit his father in Toronto every other weekend. And basically once I got there, they, they weren't very interested in what I was doing. So I would look up the open stages in the local music mags and go walk in with my guitar and play at these different places. And I was underage, but it seemed that they'd let me in with a guitar in my hand. Nice. Um, yeah, it was really neat. So I, I actually ended up meeting a producer at one of these shows and he struck up a spec deal with a studio in Toronto called Phase One. And they fronted recording my first record, which then EMI picked up. So that's uh, how I got started. That's pretty exciting. And that was, uh, when was that? What, what year was that? Or what decade? That would have been 1996. Okay, six. Yeah, right. So this is still a time when that sort of process exists. And I do not know if it really exists I mean, I don't think it exists in the same way today, but I'm curious if you feel like that kind of opportunity still exists just in a new fashion these days. It does in a new fashion way with a far less investment. The the investment these guys were making was about a hundred grand, you know, yeah, it, was wow. a, it was a risk. Yeah. So how did that feel? You know, it, I think this was when you were, is this when you were 17? Yeah, I was, uh, yes, about 18 or, or so. When, I guess I was 18 when the record came out. So 1997. But yeah, no, it felt amazing. It was at a time when Sarah McLaughlin had just launched Lilith Fair and it was a bit of a trend to sign and produce records mm -hmm. of my type of music. And I was really lucky to have a great guitar instructor and singing instructor when I was young and I was kind of ready, except when I got in the studio, I'd never cut to a click track. So that was a major challenge, all these different things that I learned in the, in the first process. And uh, I did end up producing one of the tracks on that record. I met Sean Ono Lennon in a bar one night after I played. I was playing and he was playing there the next night with Yoko Ono. Wow. Yeah, it was really neat. And he came up to me after the show and we just got chatting and we hit it off like two peas in a pod. And I had no idea who he was. I went to the washroom and someone asked me, do you know who you're talking to? And I said, yeah, his name's Sean. Do you know him? He's really great. <laughs> she goes, yeah, well, he's John Lennon's son. And I was like, oh, I, I had no idea. <laughs> and I just went back out and we uh, played guitars till four in the morning. And the next day I convinced him to come in the studio. And uh, I also convinced them to not use a click track. track. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So uh, him and the, uh, I think he was the bass player for Yoko's band, played drums and Sean played bass. And we had a great time. It's still my favorite track on that record. Wow, that's cool. I, I'm not sure if I got to hear, I, I searched for the record, and I'm not sure if I found that specifically, but I did find the song uh, Half a Man. I think it was, oh, yeah. it was either the video or it was a combination of a live performance or something. It sounded like a studio recording to me. It was probably a recording from that record. Yeah, it was so gorgeous, the harmonies on there, just this beautiful, um, you know, of course, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young comes to mind when I'm hearing that. But that's something I've noticed about your music is that you have these really beautiful, rich harmonies. And we'll talk more about that as well. But what was the track like that you did with Sean? It was called My Kind. And it was really just a singer songwriter track. We did some neat things. I remember in the track, uh, we took a vocal from another song that was in the right, same key and did a big delay on it at the, the beginning of the song and had that running in the background. And 
My dad actually played trumpet in the choruses, which was really neat. My, my mom cool. and dad make regular appearances on my records. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess volume one is not on iTunes. It is only available at my website, but you can go listen to that track there if you want to. Okay. Why don't you give a shout out to your website right now so that people can click through if they want. And we'll include it in the show notes as well. Okay. Yeah. It's DanaManning.com. And Dana is spelled with a Y in the middle, D-A-Y-N-A. Okay, Groovy Rockstars. Of course, I'll put a link in the show notes. So if you want to just click through in a little bit, you can go listen to that one. I remember that at that time, Sean Lennon was also, I think I'm right on this. Wasn't he working with the band Shonen Knife? Do you remember that whole scene? I don't. I remember Chibomato. Yeah, that, oh, that's what I mean. Chibomato, right? Was that like um, some song about a chicken? That's, all that's right. Um, it was actually right before that. And yeah, actually, I have a demo tape of his still downstairs in the basement with a couple of songs that never saw the light of day that I just think are brilliant and still replay in my mind to this day, 20 years later. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Well, what an amazing first experience. So did you know enough to be sort of scared shitless at somebody spending a hundred thousand dollars on you making your first record or were you just sort of enjoying the whole process? What did that feel like? I think I was Definitely more confident even than I am now. <laughs> yeah. I think that you just walk in and pretend you know what you're doing at that age because you, there's nothing else to really do. And then also just learn as much as you can. Like I, I just kept my mouth shut a lot of the time and watched what everyone was doing and took it all in. I felt really, really privileged, but I've always felt that this was my my calling, that arranging and writing music was what I was meant to do. So I had some some level of confidence in, in being there. Yeah. Well, we'll come back and talk more about the specifics of that, of that session too, because I'd love to talk to you about recording your voice, recording your guitar, you know, that you already talked about click tracks. But I also yeah. like to ask guests to start out with an inspirational quote on the podcast. And I wondered if you have anything you'd like to share with us. I love the quote by Albert Einstein, a ship is always safe at the shore, but that's not what it's built for. <laughs> that's great. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. And um, wait, this is just popping into mind, but your band Trent Severn, isn't that the name of a waterway up there? It is the name of a waterway here. And uh, there's a couple of reasons why we chose it. We wanted something that felt a, a little bit masculine. So it'd be kind of funny when you showed up and there was three girls yeah. on the stage. That's totally what happened to me when I saw the name. I was like, who's this guy, Trent, that she's producing? That's right. And I think everyone in our area really gets it. But out west, it has caused problems. They've wanted to see Trent's ID when we check into hotels, things like that. <laughs> but we chose it because we thought the waterway connects a ton of little towns throughout the area. And we wanted to connect people through music, just like the waterway does. That's a good idea. I like that. Well, um, again, that is a really cool sound that you guys have. And particularly watching some of the, the, you know, the YouTube videos and the songs there and seeing you guys hit the harmonies. I just, you know, that's one thing that I felt like I saw in your early recording, heard it on your EMI recording. And then I still heard it later with Trent Severn. So um, I'm glad you guys are still doing these rich harmonies. Great stuff. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Share a story with us about an important failure. Was um, was some of this stuff challenging along the way? I mean, you know, you went in to do this expensive EMI record. What happened after that? I did a record with them A&Ring. So the first record they picked up when it was completed. So that was a really easy experience as an artist. And the second record, 
I kind of got sent all over North America to co-write with all the great co-writers of the time. I was really resistant to it. And it wasn't that I didn't love who I was meeting. It was that I was such an introvert when I was writing that I found it really hard to even be in the room with someone I didn't know and go through that process. Mm -hmm. So that didn't work out very well with me. I did connect with one fellow named um, Eric and uh, he wrote What If God Was One of Us by John, John Osborne. Oh, wow. And Yeah, he's an amazing writer. And uh, we wrote a couple songs for my second record. And then uh, another song I uh, was a friend of mine song that I ended up just having him teach me the piano. And I learned that and recorded that song. And I discovered that I was really good at finishing other people's ideas without them in the room. So hmm. that co-writing stuff was, I mean, it's not really production related. Um, no, it's some very important stuff though. I think, yeah, I think most of us, myself and, and most of our listeners are all people who are interested and or writing their own music as well. So, yeah. And I mean, later in life, I've become very good at co-writing. So it was just something that at, at first, the second record, they, they did ask me, who, who did you want to work with? And I said, I want to work with a fellow named Jim Scott in, in LA. Uh -huh. He re recorded Wildflowers, which was the first record I really latched onto and actually made me a songwriter. I just thought it sounded unbelievable. I still think it sounds unbelievable today. So I really latched on to what they had created on that album. And I asked them if I could meet Jim Scott and they flew me to LA and we hit it off and we ended up making a record, my second record together. So the co-writing for you felt like a bit of a failure because, you know, you, you're sort of put to write with these people, but it didn't quite work out at first. But then later you figured out a way to do it effectively. I wasn't good with anyone in the room and it felt really forced. And so I realized that I actually am a great co-writer over email and getting nice. people's ideas and learning them and rewriting something and sending it back and then having them do the same thing. And I do like to pick who's going to make final calls almost ahead of time. <laughs> you know, yeah. With Trent Severin, it's easier because I'm the producer and they kind of do default to me to finalize arrangements and everything. So that was really just my first taste of it. And, and that was definitely a failure for me. I had the opportunity to meet some unreal writers and I didn't maximize those opportunities. And I do regret that. Well, that's all right. I think it's cool that you figured out a good way to do it. I think that sometimes the co-writing thing, I know for myself, having messed around with it a little bit here, you can kind of stump your creativity. It a can feel bit. very awkward if it doesn't feel great, you know? Yeah, awkward is the word. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, writing, I think, is a place to be really vulnerable. And if you don't feel super comfortable being vulnerable around somebody, then how in the world are you going to write anything? Agreed. And I think that's why I've ended up fitting in with this producer role and enjoying Trent Severn so much because it's not attached to my name. I don't feel like it's riding on my personal image. I really do like the background seat, yet I am an extrovert when it comes to being in front of a, an audience and things, but I'm not an extrovert when I'm creating. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there's something I heard in your voice too on Half a Man, which was, you know, your first time in the studio there's a wonderful, genuine quality to it. So um, maybe that was a time where you felt like you had already written from the heart and were able to put it there, but it, it just felt more challenging to sort of do it on command in front of a bunch of strangers later. I don't know. Yeah, it was really honest. I really, when I wrote that collection of songs, I really didn't expect them 
to be recorded. Yeah. There's no more genuine place than that. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, so um, it sounds like you also sort of described your aha moment, which was, you know, realizing that you could write much more effectively with people, but through email. It's almost like you remove the feedback process by a, a little bit, and it's just enough room and freedom to try anything, put it out there. By the time you get somebody's criticism of it, it doesn't hit you as hard as it would like right there when somebody makes eye contact with you, you know, across the room. That's right. And it's also this wonderful little secret that I feel like is in my pocket that at any moment a revision could come back and uh, I could be out for dinner with my folks or my friends and go to the washroom and listen to it. And I feel like I have this little secret that I'm working on all the time. And I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, very cool. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the recording process for you. What about the session with EMI and Half a Man? Um, just starting there, starting early. What about that do you feel allowed you to sing? It, it sounds very genuine. It sounds very relaxed. It just came together in a really great way. I also appreciate that the the guitar finger picking and everything is is sort of hypnotic. You know, it doesn't really, there's nothing extra in there. And then when the rich harmonies come in, they're just, they're just huge. Uh, what can you tell us about that recording session? Um, we recorded to two inch. We started everything with just me and the guitars. And actually, I have to be honest, I didn't get to play the bed guitars on those because I couldn't. I wasn't able to play in time to click like I can now. Like okay. Every, everything else, that was my big learning lesson for my second record is before I went to L.A., I spent eight hours a day with a metronome. <laughs> and so I had a session player play them and then I, I would double them. So I could play to him, no problem. But I was just too young to to pull that off. Yeah. We did overdub drums. We didn't have the big studio in Studio One. We had Studio B. So we just had to make things work. Half the man doesn't have drums on it. I remember the uh, there's a, a synth sitar in there. And uh, you know, I didn't miss the drums at all though. No, I, I actually very often prefer no drums. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I mean, um, you know, finger picking acoustic and singing over that, it's like that's sort of a, a somewhat quiet expression to begin well, with. Yeah. And the acoustic to me is a percussionist instrument. Yeah. So there's a, yeah, there's a, a synth sitar in there. And I rem- remember saying to Ray, who was producing, I'd like something like Within You, Without You the, by the Beatles. And um, he actually, made the within you with within you without you sitar line on his synthesizer and reversed it and we ran it all through the background oh, cool. of that track. That's and great. I've I've done that a couple of times where I find melodies that pre exist that I like for tracks and then I'll just create them in some way and warp them and reverse them or different things like that. Now do you feel like when that stuff is happening, the sort of the birth of the song has to wait for the studio and wait for it to glue together like that for you to really understand it? Or do you feel like those were things where you really understood the song and the song was ready before you hit the studio and then you just added this extra thing, which turned out to be really cool? I think that record, those songs were ready to go in the studio. There wasn't much arrangement or um, revising happening Mm -hmm. there. I do remember Ray saying to me, Oh, have, do you, you should do a blues note like Joni Mitchell at the end of this. Um, there's like a da, 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 da. And I never really heard her do a blues note. I said, what are you talking about? So he played me a bunch of Joni Mitchell. And I thought, oh, that sounds great. Let's do it. 
That's cool. <laughs> and then, and then I, of course, became obsessed with Joni Mitchell, and you'll hear her throughout the rest of my work. But yeah. I remember that song being the first time that I had referenced that. Also, you should sing more on this podcast interview. That was a nice little segue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, very cool. So let's talk a little bit about how you recorded that stuff. So you talked about going in and dealing with the click track. What did you learn in around the click track? How did you solve the challenges you were running into? And what advice would you have for somebody else who's who's navigating click tracks for the first time? Just practice out of the headphones with a metronome, I would say first. And just realize, I really think that recording, I feel like I'm in a submarine when I'm recording because there's like this sonar beat going on. Mm-hmm. I can't hear anything around me. So I'm not able to play on the tones of the room or, or structure. I just think it's another beast than being a performer. And as much experience as you can get before you spend money on going in a big studio, the better. Yeah. So when I was getting ready for playing guitar and singing on the stage, I had had enough experience to know how disorienting it is to get up on a stage and all of a sudden your voice is coming back too loud or through a PA or monitors. And so in order for me to get ready for my gig, I sort of started rehearsing in the PA, in the studio with it loud and awkward and on the verge of feedback and just kind of did it in a way where I, I got used to it, where it wouldn't throw me as much. And I, th- I feel like that's what you're describing for the studio. It's like, there are a lot of things that are going to feel really alien and awkward when you first hit the studio. And so if you can prepare yourself by just get used to the awkward things, then it that's might right. not throw you as much. That's right. Yeah. Practice makes perfect. Um, now, do you feel like even when you're comfortable with a click, do you ever feel like a click is taking the life out of something where it would have more life without it. What's your feeling about that? And how do you navigate that as a producer? Hmm. As a producer, I pretty much don't cut anything without a click. I think that tracks the only thing I ever did. And I think that came out of um, being green. Uh, and what you're the, talking about half a man was not with a click. Oh, half the man was, it's the one with Sean Lennon where I said, I don't want right. to play, you know, I just want us to feel each other and play and, and record it kind of thing. Yeah. On the most recent Trent Severn record portage, there's a track called the Jack Pine and it's another hypnotic finger picking track. The whole thought of it was supposed to be, there's a very famous painting called the Jack Pine here in Canada. And it was painted by Tom Thompson, who was the inspiration for the group of seven. And mm-hmm. it was the hundredth anniversary of his death this year. And so I wanted to write something to commemorate that. And I wrote a song, basically, it's from the perspective of the Jack Pine singing to Tom Thompson about how Tom is making it feel by by capturing it. You know, why am I so special kind of thing. Nice. Um, and I wanted the production to feel like constant and like paintbrush strokes, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I cut it and cut it over and over again, all these different tempos. And then I realized that it's got a naturally speed up just a little bit in the choruses and just a little bit more in in the instrumental break. And I ended up recording it freehand, mapped it, and did this insane tempo map that you'd never even tell when you're listening to it. But it completely matters to the production. I could not cut it without it. Well, so that's fascinating. What are the benefits of having a click? You said most things you do have a click in there. Why would somebody want to have a click when they're recording? Well, that one in particular, I really wanted to do delays on the um, violin, which can create problems when you have tempo changes. You'll kind of hear it, but the the effect of that actually added to the track. So I'm generally adding 
click for other musicians and for plugins. Yeah. Do you find that when there is a click in a production, it allows people to kind of relax a little bit about doing the overdubs? Oh yeah. And that's the thing is I don't have a, I don't have a production studio here. If I'm doing drums, I have a guy that I, his drum kit set up. I know his sounds. I know the snares he has sitting against the wall. I could ask for what I want and it gets sent to me. Yeah. And I have to have everything ready to be used in any situation. So not using a click is just not even an option for me really at this point. (laughs) All right. So next question, um, you, did this fancy thing where you play the guitar and then you mapped out a click and you did the trans built in the transitions. What app yep. do you like to work in and what, what allows you to do something like that? I just did it in Pro Tools. I temple mapped, made a temple map. Um, I Googled how to do it. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Good, good. Um, yeah, I've done some of that too. And it's really, it's a proud moment when you get that right. Oh, it's yeah. awesome. I, I will say that I, I messed up the beginning and I made another track and imported a new beginning into the actual track. But you can't tell. Right. No one can tell. Yeah. Nice, nice. Well, now we'll know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. listen to it. It's neat. It's neat to listen to after you know all these things. Okay, cool. So now let's talk about singing. So when I listened to Half a Man, for example, this, this early recording, I thought your singing sounded, the pitch was just fantastic, and you were very relaxed, and the tone was right. But you said you recorded it on two inch. So we're talking about a time. Well, I mean, we had, we there was the introduction of, you know, auto tune and vocal manipulation. But I'm guessing that for the most part, you guys didn't use that. You just performed it. Can you talk about the process of capturing great vocals in the studio like that? And what what do you feel like allowed you to do that? Well, back then, I I spent my entire life singing, and I was taken under the wing by a choir teacher who thought I had some talent and he would keep me after choir practice and teach me the solos and from a very young age. You were acquired by the choir teacher. I was acquired by the choir teacher. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So I had a really strong voice back then that I, I like to say contaminated by microphones because what I really found as I went on in my career was that I was self-compressing, self-EQing, self-adjusting to the live situations that I was in. Mm -hmm. And it really did change the way that I sang. And I actually ended up going back to a really, I call him my personal trainer, a really technical vocal teacher that I still go to to this day to get my diaphragm working again and and all these things that I felt like I lost. I felt like my voice just kind of got smaller and smaller the more I heard it through a microphone. So I do try to practice singing in the air without any tools as much as I possibly can. So I'm ready to get in the studio when I need to. I definitely didn't use any auto tune on, on that record. I feel like we used an 87. It's what I remember, but that doesn't make that much sense. Does it? It, it was a low, uh, yeah, you would, you could. Okay. Um, and yeah. it was a low register vocal, as I recall, I think, right? Especially yeah. compared to some of the other songs that sounded a little more, for lack of a better descriptive term, I would say, kind of the 90s pop indie rock or alt rock yeah. kind of thing where you're doing this wide vocal range, you know? That's right. It was very kind of a monochromatic or monotone or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like we did that. And also I really loved the fellow who mixed that record is a f- guy named Stephen Drake up here in Canada. And he has this 
I have no idea. He calls it his army compressor. This, you know, hacked compressor doesn't have a name on it. And he called it his grain of fire. And he used that to mix all the um, vocals. And and I thought they're still kind of my favorite vocals that I've ever done. Yeah. Well, so how did you record them? I mean, do you did you have headphones on? Did you have speakers going? Did you just sing live with music going in the room? What was the process that allowed you to capture your vocals on a mic really well? No, I was in headphones. I had, you know, one off so I could, I, I really find I need that for pitch. And it was pretty normal. It's be like the glamour shot of the singer in the studio. Yeah. That's what I remember. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. Now, how about sharing with us a story of some of the stuff you've run into where it really gets awkward and it's hard to get great vocals in the studio. What are some of the things that people should watch out for? Huh. Like, what are the things where you walk in and you just know it's not right when you're getting started? Is there anything in the headphone mix where you're like, that's, that's not going to work, guys, you know? Or is it, do you need your headphones loud or quiet? I used to use those kind of loud Sony headphones. And yeah. I only use AKGs, those really kind of soft AKGs. And I use them really quiet. And I make sure that I'm trying to listen to my voice in the room as opposed to in the... Right. Headphone. So if a headphone sort of covers, cups your ear and it feels like you're in a box, that's not going to work for you. That doesn't work for me. But the big thing is click too. I need to hear the click. I'm really conscious when recording about singing in time. I think it's just, I don't know how to describe it. I'm not as conscious when I'm playing guitar at the same time, if that makes any sense. That That's connected and you can feel it connected. Mm -hmm. But when you get out of playing your instrument and singing at the same time, you have to make sure that you're connecting to something. And I find it easiest to connect to the click. Well, I, I, I follow you. And I think that also when you're singing, your voice is pretty loud in your body, you know, physically. And the only thing that you're making music with is this little teeny tiny speaker, you know, and if you got one ear off, it's just in one of your ears. So I find sometimes that's the big challenge is like figuring out how to connect between those two things. So if timing is it, it makes sense that you want to hear that click in there and yeah. let that be sort of a psychic reference. I do picture my voice. I picture my voice resonating just above my top lip in between my lip and my nose. That's, and I do, that's making my mustache tickle a little bit. Yeah, that me. would make, yeah, that's right. Make your mustache <laughs> tickle. But I do, I do find when I picture that the presence is better. It's fascinating to me to hear you talk about singing too, because as a studied vocalist, you're aware of all these aspects of your voice and you even have words to describe them. In my world, singing is just kind of something you just do and, you know, you hopefully feel it and hopefully your voice isn't worn out. But uh, I guess I've learned a little bit about singing from the diaphragm, Try not to pinch your, my throat too much, like relax into the high notes if I can. Um, yeah. And also your diaphragm, a lot of people don't realize the diaphragm when it's fully engaged is actually out. It's, if it's two inches above your belly button. And when you're fully supporting, that diaphragm is pushing out. And as you run out of air, you actually push your diaphragm out further. And that grabs the intercostal muscles at those lower ribs and pulls them in when the diaphragm goes out. And that's how you support pitch and, and breath. Well, that all sounds very fancy to me. Yeah. I think about it as just sort of letting my 
beer belly fly while I'm yeah, singing that's on it. note. <laughs> that's right. I love having a guitar in front of me when I sing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I me too. And and the reason I like that is because your voice and the guitar all become one instrument. It becomes much easier to find each other, I think, you know, mm-hmm. and find pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, cool. Uh, let's see what I want to ask you next. How about doing vocal takes and, and comping and things like that? What What's your experience with that? What do you like to do what can you what what drives you crazy getting into too many takes drives me crazy at a time i like i like to do four or five takes maybe just maybe three if it's going well comp from there and then realize whether you had a great day or not but you can't realize it that day uh, for me i have to come back to it i really love my avalon for recording uh vocals i side chain the mids through the compressor and kind of like crank the the preamp gain till it's almost distorting. And I feel like I can, by kind of moving the low mid and high mid ranges, I can get like this really nice spongy effect that will, that I can use for everyone. Is that Um, the 737? Is that the one? Yeah. The 737. I I basically have two compressors and two mics that I use to record entire records which I, I think is kind of amazing that you can do these days, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, but that, I, I couldn't do anything without, without that. That was my best purchase ever years ago. So Rockstars, what Dana's talking about is side-chaining the compression, Dana, if I'm following you right, means yeah. you, you're EQing, sort of you're extent, accentuating the mid-range of your voice, but you're, you're making that the side-chain of the compression so that the compressor is actually clamping down a little more on the mids, which has the effect of kind of smoothing out the tone as it's recorded. Is that right? Yeah, and DS is a little bit, but it, I just find that it's pretty standard for whoever I get in there. I can make that work. Yeah, and, all right. Yeah. So you're not necessarily EQing the tone of your voice. You're EQing the way the compressor is working. That's right. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, let's start talking about some of these great folks you got a chance to work with. What are some of the things you learned from Jim Scott, Rick Rubin, Don Was, Dave Kalmuski, Tom Lord Algie, a great list of names. Uh, Let's just start at the beginning. Tell us about what you learned from Jim Scott. Well, I got to make my second record with Jim. He was the producer and engineer. And I'd wanted to work with him my my whole life at that point, and still to this day think he's the just the cat's ass. I don't know if I can say that. I just yeah, think I did. He's I already the best. said the s s h word. <laughs> okay, great. And yeah, we keep in touch. But anyhow, he he engineered Californication, and I think the most recent Dixie Chicks and Tom Petty Wildflowers. And I just That's right. love him as a human. So just to tell you a little bit about him. I think he started actually in a mobile recording van. So he got his start kind of in the hardest situations where you got to kind of act fast. And um, he isn't a musician. He um, owns the best collection of gear I've ever seen in my entire life, has a warehouse in California. And uh, I, I just remember if we wanted a different snare sound, we went and got a different snare. There was no uh, <laughs> EQing uh, really much of anything. And uh his big line was put a great sound in front of a great mic. Nice. And, and I love that. I love that quote. That's, that's kind of been my mantra for my recording. And uh, he always would say, Oh, well, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. And that's the truth. Like you can't save a mix by sweating a bar, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I really have through my whole life had him on repeat saying those two things. He also, um, you know, 
all the guitars we used, he owned and he had recorded a hundred guitars before he decided to buy this one and this one. And, uh, I just loved how he worked. I was, he was the first guy that I saw, you know, um, cut tape and tape it back together or fly a guitar solo somewhere else on one inch. And I remember him having to make the transition to pro tools was just grueling for him. Just, he has amazing ears, amazing ears. And, uh, was really encouraging and really made me trust my instincts. And so I made that record in cello studios, which was the original ocean way mm-hmm. in LA. And the back room was kind of where we cut the beds. And then the studio C was where, where pet sounds was recorded actually. Wow. And that's where we, we finished everything, but you know, did you record that, your harmonies there? Yeah, I would have recorded harmonies for that record there. How, yeah. how did that feel recording harmonies in the same space where pet sounds was done? unreal. It was just incredible to create a record there. And I think there was even a little piano in that room. And and I remember playing the piano, thinking about Brian Wilson and really taking it in. I remember one day Jim did say to me, Hey Dana, you know, you got some time off today. Do you want to go down to Sunset Boulevard or explore, explore Hollywood a little bit? And I said, Jim, no, I've waited my whole life to be here. I'll be here every minute. I'll come back if I want to do that. You know, the day you're not paying for the studios, you're you're not allowed to be there. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I um, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, the back room was really the most amazing sounding sounding room to cut beds in. And as soon as we moved out of there, Audio Slave had moved in to make their their first oh, record. Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, I was just listening was, to that recently. Yeah, amazing sounding record. And I remember um, I remember them getting sounds one day, and I was sitting out on the back patio. And they were jamming cashmere with the door open. <laughs> I just re- I remember thinking, oh, no one's ever going to believe me. <laughs> wow. Amazing. So did Jim record Audio Slave as well? He didn't. I think that was um, a guy named Dave Schiffman who okay. was recording that. And Rick Rubin right. was producing. And the biggest thing that I noticed about Rick Rubin producing, we also had um, the System of a Down record, their first, re- I don't know if it was their first, that Toxicity record. Mm-hmm. They were making that at the same time. And Rick was producing that. And he was never there. And yeah. uh, what I loved about that was because he did it all in pre-production. He worked on the song arrangements and he made that band practice and he made sure that they knew their parts and he hired a great engineer to come in and, and record them and didn't have to babysit the sessions, you know, because the real important work, the making a great sound and putting it in front of a great microphone was done and he hired the right guy to put up the great m- microphone. And mm-hmm. that, I just took so much from hearing about how he worked and I got to, you know, go over to his house one day and borrow, borrow a Chamberlain organ. And he was downstairs with Johnny Cash in the basement, you know? So he was always working on several projects at one time, but I think that the time put in was always pre-production, right? That's so cool. I'm envious. Yeah. It was Um, a really cool place to be at that time. I feel like the only place I've ever had the chance to really put in that kind of pre-production time, you know, really extensive is with my own band and my, and my own stuff. Yeah. You know, and what a what a pleasure it would be to just do that with every project, you know. I know That's, it sounds so simple. And I think it's what really makes all these great bands that we've loved, the Beatles and Zeppelin. And, you know, I think it's what makes them great, you know. I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. And I would say that um, one of the challenges for people as producers to be able to put in that kind of pre-production is... It's a pretty dumb, simple question, but it's just like, you know, where does all that that energy and budget come from for you to do that? And so I think that if you're working with artists and it's sort of, you know, if you've got a long-term vision for your recording session and you can really 
somehow put in the time ahead of time and keep that relaxed, I think that would be a wonderful way to do it. I agree. The Trend 7 records are quite hard to make because we're writing as we make them and uh, often learning the parts afterwards. And I don't like necessarily working like that, but I've found ways around it. I'm willing to make mistakes. I, I've definitely recorded songs in the wrong key at the wrong tempo, had drums cut on it and scrapped them. And I think that uh, when you can't do that kind of in-depth pre-pro, make sure that you have time built in to scrap. Right. Just yeah. accept that you're going to be writing and creating and pre-producing in the studio while you're producing. Yeah. You know, because that does become part of it. So I've been there and I've actually put in ridiculous amounts of time working on stuff that ultimately needed to be thrown away and did get thrown away. Mm. What do you want to say about the process of identifying when it's time to scrap something? And also just the, the human tendency to not want to let go of something. Hmm. I would say if your shoulders are not moving, you need to scrap it. <laughs> like if you're not into the groove of it, um, if the vocals are in the wrong place for the singer, you need to scrap it. it those are the big t- telltale signs of me for me is mm-hmm. groove and, and keys. Yeah. So you had cut something in the wrong key at the wrong tempo and put drums on it. Yeah. And then realized it just, it just didn't feel right or that your voice sounded wrong or you just couldn't sing over it. Um, the key was wrong. It was, a, the track was called Wake Up Willie. It's on the most recent um, Trent Severn record. And it's got this really wicked guitar riff. And we decided to put it in F for M to sing it. The reason we don't like to go too low, it's not necessarily for the recording process, but live, it doesn't translate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking, oh, how can I make this song cool yet translate live? So we recorded it in F. I had it a little slower because I wanted to do this Cripple Creek kind of rock beat thing. And it didn't work. Also, all of our friends around us kept picking up the guitar and playing this riff after we were playing them the demos and stuff. And I thought anyone who hears this record that wants to play this riff is not going to get their guitar and throw a capo on. Right. They're going <laughs> to they're gonna want to just be able to play it in E. So I decided, oh, I'm going to go back down to E. And then the other deciding moment was actually I was at, at Winter Nam in L.A. and I saw Robert Randolph band and yeah. And uh, they were playing Use Me by Bill Withers. And I just went, oh, I don't want Cripple Creek beat. I want Bill Withers beat. (laughs) And realized these kind of mistakes that I had made and went back to the drawing board. And I'm pretty happy with that track, although that was a big, I feel like I just slightly overproduced it. I have a problem with a little bit of overproducing. I think when I don't put too many things in, I really nail it on the head. And uh, really getting to know my instruments and where they fit in the EQ range. Like Mm -hmm. that's been what I've been really learning. Like I love having a high strung around for when I want to just add a little sparkle on the chorus. Yeah. I also, I'm really lucky to live in Stratford, Ontario. Stratford, Ontario has got the uh, largest Shakespearean theater company in the world. We have four theaters here. Um, Do you have a lot of lute players or something? (laughs) Well, not a lot of lute players. They do do musicals and all those things, but Every show is done with live music. We have some of the most incredible musicians here. And I have a friend who's their percussionist who has an entire basement. I call it the games room (laughs) where he has a marimba and a vibraphone and every percussion instrument set up. So I've got a little portable recording uh, setup that I go over and grab vibes if I want vibes on a track or. That's cool. Yeah. These different things. So I, I think, I think I had a good success with Wake Up Willie in that 
I got it in the groove and the feel and everything that I wanted. I do think I added a little too much on the uh, high-end sparkle yeah. instruments. Well, yeah. So I, I have a comment on that. I think that a couple of things happened for me. One is when you're producing and you're in the studio and you're overdubbing, it's fun to have new ideas. It's fun oh, to keep coming up with ideas and trying <laughs> stuff. And especially if you got all these instruments you could try and this and that and the other thing. I think it's a natural inclination to put something on, put something on. In fact, you know, you feel more like you're doing something if you put something on than if you take something off when you're, uh, you know, working in the studio. Mm -hmm. But uh, another thing too, is I think that when we're overdubbing, the layers that are on top, you know, it's like the song, the layers that we just put on, they're getting buried. And the last thing we did is on top. And so is there's a tendency to, to lose sight of things that you actually worked pretty hard on earlier on. That's right. And I always think that I have the idea that I'm, oh, I'm just going to put everything that I can think of on here and then I'll take away later. And sometimes that's just not the way to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. and then also, you know, there's a big difference between having an entire ensemble to arrange with when it's happening versus one piece at a time and seeing yeah. where this thing's headed, you know? Yeah. The The most recent record was fun for me because we actually, it was the first time that we had a pretty decent budget. We got a grant from the government and our, our arts in Canada work a bit of it a different way than down there, but we can apply for some pretty great grants up here. Yeah. And the first two records I made for Trent Severn, we kind of had this rule that we really wanted our live show to reflect our recordings. So that because we were kind of modeling our band with a live show business involved rather than a recording career involved. Right. So we wanted everything to be a souvenir from the stage. Mm-hmm. And so I knew exactly what I had to work with on the, the first two. I had a ukulele bass, a stomp box, some percussion that I play with my feet, an acoustic guitar and a fiddle and three voices. So a lot of the early Severn stuff is just that. And, yeah. and I, I really loved knowing that I had to write and produce working in that arrangement. The second record, I did let a full kid on one song. And then the third record, we just got a little bit psychedelic and crazy. for it. (laughs) Yeah, and went for it. And I I think that that's important, though, from a recording aspect, that you should always be pushing your listeners to the next level. I I don't think you should meet anyone's expectations ever. So a couple of thoughts on that. One is that I think there's a lot to be gained from really knowing what the limitations are of your palate when you're creating. I think it actually causes us to be more creative by having less to work with. And another thought, another question to put back to you is, okay, so when you started pushing your palate and, you know, adding whatever you wanted and drums, what did that mean for you as an artist hitting the stage then with this record? And what were the challenges? You know, do you have any advice you want to share for people about that? Well, I know that challenge well, because I've, I went through that with my, my solo career. I always had quite lovely produced up records that I could never perform with solo. So that part of that frustration is why Trend Seven existed for both M and I, we were both kind of sick of being that single girl singing on the stage that if you're in a pub, everyone's talking and half the people feel sorry for you. Is, just, is M ugh. the one who's playing the uke bass with the, yeah. the big rubber strings on it? Yeah, she's pretty awesome. She used yeah. to tour with in David Bowie's band and she has about 15 records of her own out. She's an amazing artist. Wow. And uh, yeah, so we just wanted to do something that was a little bit more fun than, than performing on our own and kind of came up with this band together in the concept. And we, we 
it is the best thing in our lives. Like we call it tourcation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we go out on the road, they're my best friends. Uh, we've just really created an amazing working arrangement for all of us. We do have someone who helps us with bookings, but the rest of it, we pretty much manage ourselves. We know each other's jobs. Mm-hmm. We know if a project's coming, like we do some symphony shows. So if we're doing some symphony proposals, someone takes that on. If we're applying for a grant, someone takes that on. And it's their responsibility to push the others to get what they need from them to get it done, right? Yeah. So we're really just really experienced with communicating with each other and working really well together. Um, That's a good but, bit of advice. You know, I've done collaborations in business and also in music and in bands. And I feel like it's taken me a long time to learn that the best way to collaborate is probably to just say, I'll do this part, you do that part, and not get in each other's way, you know? That's right. Just trusting each other to do these things. Yeah. The biggest thing for me, something I'd love to share about how we run Transeverin. Sure. um, Was dealing with how we were going to manage the money. Because I think that that can trip up a band more than an arrangement of a song or something yeah, like that. Once you know? the millions start flowing in, you got to have a plan <laughs> yeah. in place, right? Well, not even the millions, but um, just a, a way to keep things organized and be able to file the taxes at the end of the year and have all the receipts in the same place. We ended up setting up an email that's only dedicated to our money management. So if I buy gas on the band visa, I take a photo of the gas receipt and I send it to this specific email. Super smart. Super smart. Yeah. And also if I want to take a withdrawal from our shared bank account, I make an invoice and I send it to this email and then I get an e-transfer. And if a drummer comes, does a show with us or works on a record, he sends an email for his invoice to the same email. And then the bookkeepers on the other end, we don't, look for receipts at the end of the year. It's all digitally collected and it's in an email that we can all access at any time. That's cool. You know, actually, I know that we're really geeking out here, but (laughs) I just went through this too. And I finally sat down to figure out a new way again. And I, and I came up with one where I'm emailing it to my Evernote folder, but if I want to email it to there, I then have to also go in and edit the, the subject line and put in at receipts for it to go there. And yours is so much easier because you can just type in the, you know, the first two letters of that email address, it pops up, you hit send and you're done. Yeah. And I write at the top, I'll write visa, $50 gas. That's the subject line. That's it. I'm, I'm going to adopt your technique. Um, any warnings for the rest of us as far as trusting that they're all just sort of safely in, in a Gmail or, or something like that? Or is that sort of a non-issue because somebody collects them every once in a while? Yeah, it's a non-issue. They actually all get printed out by our bookkeeper and uh, they're upstairs filed in my attic nice. each year. Yeah. Nice. Is your attic just full of receipts? Can you jump in it like a pile of leaves? <laughs> Is it a lot of fun? Hey, um, it, you're not too far off right now. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's go back on track talking about some of these folks you worked with too. You hey. also mentioned Don Was. Tell us your story about working with or working around Don Was. Yeah, when I first arrived at Cello, he was working on a Black Crows record and he hung around so much with us. What I really remember about him was whenever there was a a chance to get in a studio with some speakers, he was always throwing up Elvis tracks and Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson and kind of reminiscing and talking about how they recorded their records and the purity of them. And he he was just, he always brought a lot of joy, I found, ar- around and lightheartedness to the studio, even though he's kind of working with these maybe acts that we think of as more 
maybe tormented or, or heavy. And Mm -hmm. uh, I just really loved his personality and the essence that he brought into the studios, what I really remember about him and also what he loved and showing us what he loved. Do you remember Mm -hmm. his band was not was? I am aware of it. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I can say about it. I, I I just remember them. I don't, I can't, I can't uh, name drop singles at the moment. But I know he's done a lot of great stuff, and I believe he was like even involved with re-releasing the Rolling Stones and you know producing records with those guys. And he's just been around for ages and ages. And I know he had also worked with another artist that I've worked with, Jill Sobiel, when she sort of self-fundraised and, and did a record with him. And I heard some great stories about recording Jill's vocals with, I think it was like a U67, but then an SM7 right next to it so that and on two separate oh. tracks so that you could kind of pick and choose which vocal tone you wanted to work with in a song. That's that interesting. Pretty clever. Yeah. Well, all right. Now, um, Tom Lord Algae was also on your list. And and yeah. so first question is, do you pronounce it Tom Lord Algae or Tom Lord Alge? Tom Lord Algae. All right. That's how I do it too. <laughs> yeah. I actually mixed my first single for EMI with him. He had just done one headlight. He was kind of the the hottest mixer out there at the time. And, uh, I flew down to Miami. Well, actually this is a bit of a, this is a good label story. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't get along with my label the best, but anyway, that's okay. Well, you were the, um, that's a, remarkable because you were probably the first person to ever not get along with their label. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, I had been involved in this, this first record from day one. They, they picked it up, you know, after it was done, I was there for every note that was ever played on it. I really, had a vision for it and was following it through. And anyhow, they wanted to remix this song. And they told me that Tom Lord Algae would not work in the studio with, um, with artists that he's just kind of that hot right now. And he can kind of do things how he wants to. Mm -hmm. Then, um, I was talking to his manager and she said, so when are you arriving? I said, well, I was told I'm not allowed to, to come there that he doesn't work with, with artists in the studio. She goes, he goes, no, no. She, it was a, she yeah. was a man. Sorry. She goes, um, no, 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 no. He hates doing anything without the artist there because he ends up using tracks they don't want. And he ends up having to remix things. You have to be here kind of thing. So <laughs> then I also found out that another act on our label was just mixing with him the week before and in Miami with him. So I actually bought myself a ticket. I flew to Miami without my label knowing, put myself up in a hotel did the mix, came back, had a meeting with A&R and they said, how do you like the mix? And I said, well, I was sitting right beside him. So I think I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And they, they did reimburse me for that trip. That's great. Uh, When, when was that that you were mixing with them? That would have been late 96, I think. Late 96. Okay. Uh, I actually also got a chance to work with him and mix with him down there. um, But we were, we didn't show up for another few years at least. Mm -hmm. So, but it was really fun. Rock stars to be on South Beach in Miami mixing yeah. in a really trendy. Let's just say that this the hotel that the studio was in feels like a like a weird glowing blue drink with with smoke coming off it. You know. Yeah, and I don't know. I got to go for a ride in his Ferrari, which was pretty cool. Oh that's yeah, that's right. Yeah. I remember. The, I remember the Ferrari and the 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 yellow Pontiac car. It was like a a really fancy race car, but it kind of looked like a slice of Wisconsin cheese. Yeah. Um, I kind of remember that too. Maybe it's not, a, maybe that's what I'm remembering and not a Ferrari. Well, it, I remember bright yellow. 
It was cool though. And um, this was, uh, as, as I recall, it was the Blue Marlin Hotel, which was owned by David Blackmer of Island Records. And oh, so wow. they, they sort of put the latest CDs in your, in your hotel room and stuff. It's cool. Well, well what, did, cool. what did you learn from working with Tom? Because um, I thought he, I learned remarkable things. I learned some pretty funny stuff too. I, I learned that I was asking way too many questions and making it very hard for him to actually focus and work. But that was my own journey. What did you learn about working with with Tom? Um, I learned, yeah, well, I, I definitely learned that he was quick. He didn't fuss over a lot of things. I think we were done way faster than than I expected to be. I think I was too young to to learn too much about recording at that point from him. Mm-hmm. I just was I thought it was really amazing to be in the room while he worked. I didn't I can't say anything technical that I learned, <laughs> except that he had great ears and and was super efficient. How would you describe yeah. just maybe the sound of that record versus um, records that you made later? Do you feel like there was a way to describe the differences between those records? Oh, it was just ready for radio. Like he just mixed a single for me, and uh, I would say slamming would be my word. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, I don't know if you remembered him printing to a, a two-track tape machine in the back, but one of the things that was really cool was looking over there and seeing the needles just buried on the on the tape as it was printing, yeah. and having yeah. it come back. Is he? One thing I really liked about Tom is he broke rules every time he was up against a rule. He just broke it and it sounded yeah. killer. Well, yeah, I, I don't think there are rules myself, but well, let's okay. talk about that. Where are some <laughs> places that you feel like you've, you've run into rules or somebody tried to tell you there were rules and you learned that there weren't any? Well, I think recording is the biggest place where I, where I just, I haven't done that much study on recording. I've watched a billion people record and I have really good ears. So if it sounds good to you, you got to trust your instincts and go for it. I'm not someone like I don't mix. Right. So I, mm-hmm. I always hire someone to mix my stuff. So I'm not really that into plugins. I don't own a lot of plugins and things I kind of have the factory ones. But you know what I love? I love putting Maxim on my rough mixes for my artists to listen to, which mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone would tell you, oh, it's crap. Don't use it. But I don't I'm not going to spend money on buying something else. I, I think if I can get something sounding at, at a level that I like where they're going to feel good about it, I'm fine with that for now until I send it to mix. You know, mm-hmm. I've never had to send something or I've had, never had to recut something because a mixer couldn't use it. I just think you have to go for it and, and look up what you need to as you go. When I bought the Avalon, I used the owner. My, my friend makes what M makes fun of me all the time. I, I got the owner's manual out to see how to do a base setting for when I wanted to DI some base into, into the board because that's what I had at the time. And I used my ears and I adjusted my knobs from there. I just think have a lot of confidence. You know when something's distorting. You know when something needs a high pass filter. I, I don't know. It's just kind of, it's a lot easier, I think, than... I could make it be if I wanted to. Yeah. Wanted to. Well, I hearing you describe it, I imagine that you spent enough time in studios and recording with talented people finding sounds that you had grown accustomed to what sounds good. You'd learned to just sort of trust your ear and your feeling about it because you didn't have to push all the knobs. Did you, when you started That's pushing right. knobs, find that you were really frustrated or like, did you quickly identify, well, that doesn't sound good or this doesn't sound good. Or did you just grab knobs and turn them and and get it to sound good easily? 
Yeah, I'd look up reference points and then I would talk to talented friends of mine who would help me with some settings or, yeah, no, one day, I remember at the start of Trillium, which is the second record Trent Severn did, it was the first one that I fully engineered and produced myself and just feeling really unconfident. And I called Frank Greiner, who's M's brother and also is an amazing producer and engineer. He worked on Rob Zombie records and lots of cool stuff. Nice. I said, Frank, do you mind coming over for like two hours and just making sure I'm not doing anything that's going to wreck our record? <laughs> Don't wreck your record. <laughs> yeah. And he came over and he's like, you're fine. You know, you, you might want to drive this a little harder. You might want to back off your compressor here, whatever the, the advice was. But he gave me a starting point and I just went from there. Yeah. Yeah. And also the other thing too is generally the musicians that you have coming in the studio, they know what they're supposed to sound like. They know where the mic placement's supposed to be. Like I'd never mm-hmm. recorded a violin until Transever and I don't play violin. I I just ask Lindsay, hey, how, how should I set this up? How far away do you want to be? We get our cans on and we figure out if it sounds good. I record a little, I put it out in the speakers, make sure I'm happy with it and go from there. So I do really trust, you know, Mikey, my own guitar. I saw Jim mic it a billion times when I was working on that record with him. I know mm-hmm. where to put the mics. That's cool. Yeah. That's a a lesson that I sort of learned. I think I just learned it. I taught myself that, which was going into the studio and when, when musicians would come in, just say, Hey, where does, uh, you know, where do you, where do you like to mic this the most? Or where do you, where do you find you get the best sound most often? Cause if you're working with somebody who has recorded a lot, you know, take your ego out of the way for a second. Don't feel like you're, nobody's wondering if you're going to walk in with the right answer. They just want to get a great recording of the upright bass or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And even just like, I remember recording banjo and, um, or even doing banjo live and having our sound guy come up on stage, turn the mic off and put his ear up and listen to what, where, what it sounds like in different areas. And so I, if I was playing banjo, I'd make M pick it for a little bit. Well, I could listen to it and figure out where I wanted to put the mic. And then I'd listen to it back. And if I've got a problem, I move it, you know? Yeah. And it's a cool trick, just moving your ear around. It doesn't always sound the same. Obviously you go listen to the speaker like, well, I don't know if that's what my ear sounded like, but it's a good way to to do it. All right. Well, so let me ask you a couple more questions and we'll take a break and we'll come in for the jam session. Um, Recording rich vocal harmonies like Trent Severn, what advice do you have for getting a wonderful blend of of harmonies. You know, you guys are doing three-part harmonies, right? Yeah, we are pretty much always doing three-part. I'm really lucky. I was raised by a music teacher who decided, who can read music on any instrument. He's insane. Who decided that I was going to learn Suzuki and not learn how to read music and get ear training. Mm -hmm. And so I can basically write those harmonies on the spot. A lot of, a lot of the, um, even the, the lush string arrangements and stuff, I just sing each line to to Lindsay as we go. Nice. And so I have a really, really amazing year that way. I would say that it's probably my best asset That's and that people know me for. Yeah. As far as recording, it, it really depends. If it's a sparse track, you're hearing three vocals. If it's a really thick track, like No Anchor, or kind of the backgrounds, there's a song called Sweethearts. Sometimes I've got up to three tracks of each person singing. Right. So you're yeah. layering each individual part gets three recorded passes. Yeah. And that really gives it that kind of CSNY feel to me. I, I suspect, I don't know anything I actually about this because I've not researched it, but I suspect that CSNY was 
all recording maybe on the same microphone and then doing it again. Mm-hmm. I don't, cause that's what it sounds like to me. And I'm too scared to put us all in the same microphone right now right, right. <laughs> for vocal takes. But that's how I try to build that up. I, I am a little bit careful of it though, because the um, intimacy can get lost yeah. when you do it that way. It can sound um, pretty produced in a way. Yeah. You know? And usually what you're hearing is a lead vocal with maybe a double and then to a lead harmony, a mid harmony and a high. And then the doubles of those are low. Right. Yeah. The doubles the of the mid and the high are an octave lower. Is that what you're saying? No, they're just low in the mix. Right. Not, oh, okay. You know, low in the mix. Right. Yeah. They're just kind of supporting, giving, filling it out. If I'm really having a hard time with arranging, actually, I have to arrange Strawberry Fields for three-part harmony right now. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've, that's what I was working on last night at the studio. And there's one part in the, let me take you down because I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Nothing is real. Yeah. The nothing to get hung about. The nothing is real. Nothing to get is crazy. I, I, I've almost got it, but I... I have it for two. I've almost got it for three. So oh, I right. Ex- right. So I exported those and I popped them in Melodyne here on my laptop and I'm moving the notes to see where they've got to be. Cause that, that is a good, hard. easy way to, to try things and explore possibilities yeah. very quickly. And that, that brings up two things. One is it's remarkably challenging to find three notes for a moving melody when you're trying yeah. to harmonize everywhere all the time. What are your feelings about unison as a solution for looking for a harmony in a spot? Do you feel like sometimes there's there's a harmony that works and then in, in this one spot, it should just be unison between the two voices and that's okay? I love that so much and I find it so effective live. Yeah, a singing in unison is one of my favorite things. Yeah, well, um, mm-hmm. also it reminded me that I think I had heard that that the Beach Boys would sing They'd stack parts, but they might all sing the same unison part together and then go to the next one and sing that the same together. Really? I think so, yeah. So that might be what you got to try next. That is what I'm trying next. That sounds amazing. Because you'll get the timbres of everyone's voice. Yeah, and you'll probably end up with a very thick, you know, rich sound. Mm -hmm. and, And maybe the unisoning of the voices in the room does a different thing too. Yeah, that's cool. Let's ask you about working with Mr. Dave Kalmuski. Also a guest on the podcast. Well, Dave's, I've known Dave since my early 20s. He was actually taught by my dad in high school and everyone in town. We're a couple years apart, enough to be not, not have gone to high school at the same time. Yeah. And uh, everyone would say, you got to meet Dana. And everyone would say, you got to meet Dave. And finally we did meet and we were just kind of best friends right off the bat. And uh I met him working. I, I actually use his studio here in Stratford, Ontario. And I use my gear in his studio because it just makes way more sense to put all the gear in the same place. That's cool. I um, forgot that Dave had a, a studio in Stratford, Ontario. Yeah. He's got this little attic space that... Um, and I, I should mean, know. I produced a podcast where he told me that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. So, um, I mean, I've watched Dave work to getting an addiction. When I met him, he was producing some of his first records the exact same way that I'm doing it in his studio. Um, you might have to you might have to clarify what you just said. You said I've watched Dave work to getting addiction, so you oh, might have to sorry, clarify yeah. that for the rock stars. Um, 
So uh, Dave Kalmuski now runs Addiction Studios in Nashville with Jonathan Kane, right? From, yeah. from Journey. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly one of the most beautiful studios I've ever been in in my entire life. It's Dave's dream come true. And I've watched him w- make that dream come true, really. It's such a wonderful place. Oh, it's such a wonderful place. And the, the wonderful thing about Dave is he's the nicest guy on the planet. He's always had the best ears and the best kind of studio sense. And it's just wonderful to watch him succeed. But yeah, so I'm kind of make, following him in his footsteps so maybe a little later in life. I think I think you did touch upon the fact that I'm the first woman on the podcast. Yep, and yep. I definitely find my confidence as a producer takes a hit from being a woman. Like sometimes I'm in a room and I just feel like, and maybe not as taken seriously, but but yeah. maybe but maybe that's okay because I should maybe I shouldn't be taken as seriously at this point. I feel like I'm in kindergarten of my producing career, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, but I, yeah, it's really cool to to follow in Dave's footsteps because I feel like I'm where he began, and I can maybe get where where he is. Although I don't think I don't see myself being dedicated to recording 100% of the time. I really love being a touring artist and. Mm-hmm my kind of rule is that I make records in the winter and I tour them in the summer. Well, I wasn't going to, you know, turn this into an episode about being a woman as a producer, but since you brought it up, would you like to share any advice or anything for any women who are listening that are thinking about doing this and sort of just happy to hear from you on the show? Yeah, I think you just have to be a bit of a, don't be afraid to be pushy and get what you need and show people your talent. I, I really do feel like I'm being polite a lot of the time and taking a back seat when there really is something or I know or something that I hear. Don't let one of the guys speak up about it. Speak up first and definitely try to show as many people your talent as you can. I, I That's what I really find is even people I've known for years until they get in a studio with me and I help them start recording something or arranging a song. They really don't know what my talents are. So I think the best advice would be make sure you show people who you are and what you can do. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, Dana, thank you for sharing that. Let's take a break for a moment and we'll come back in for the jam session in just a moment, Rockstars. A reminder, you can find links to everything we're talking about in the show notes. Just go to rsrockstars.com. And then use the magnifying glass to search for Dana, D-A-Y-N-A, Manning. Or if you're on your iPod or your iPhone or your Android, just click through on the the, uh, podcast listening app and you'll see the show notes right there. And you can just click through and, and check out any of these things we're talking about. See you guys in just a sec for the jam session. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299. Or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. 
These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Are you thinking about hiring professional mastering for your song or record? Chris Graham is a Billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer who has mastered thousands of songs for both pro and home studio clients just like you. Send in your song and Chris will give you a free sample master of your mix. Book a project with Chris today and also get a free video mix consultation before mastering. This will help make sure your mixes are the best that they can be. So go to chrisgrammastering.com today and get your free sample started and your record finally finished. Just click the link included in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, we're back for the jam session. My guest today is Dana Manning, joining us from Ontario. And uh, we're going to jump in for the jam. Dana, are you ready to jam? Yeah, let's go. All right, cool. When you started out in recording, what was holding you back? Confidence and the feeling of a lack of knowledge that I later realized that I could look up on Google. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't say being a woman. <laughs> No, I, ne I, I never felt that. I, I, I grew up in an atmosphere where if I wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, a recording star, I was supported to do whatever I wanted. That's good because I have an 11-year-old daughter and, and I definitely try and encourage her to feel that way about everything. Oh, that's awesome. So um, how did you get past that obstacle of, of uh, not knowing enough or feeling like you didn't know enough? Just doing things over and over until I got them right. And uh, saying yes to opportunities that I felt were over my head, including this podcast. Um, nice. You just have to um, put yourself in situations that scare you. Yep, it's good advice. <laughs> I feel like I learned that researching Buddhism, this idea of leaning into the sharp points, which is essentially my interpretation was if you feel like something's scary or it hurts a little bit, it could be a very good sign that that's exactly the right direction you're supposed to be going in. Yeah, I love that too. That's Even though great. that sounds a little masochistic to say. Like <laughs> no, no, it's it's the challenge, right? I yeah. think I think everyone feels like that. Yeah. You feel a greater sense of accomplishment too, the more it scares you. Yep. All right. So now how about some of the best advice you received? Um, definitely definitely that put a great mic in front of a great sound by Jim Scott. And uh, another piece of advice that I love is from my bandmate. M. Griner, because I, I actually went with a large break between solo records because of a lack of, I felt like I had a lack of purpose a little bit with it. And Trent Severn really rekindled that purpose mm -hmm. for me because we have a purpose in our band. We want to tell stories of our communities and our history around us. But she looks at being an artist and recording and writing like a diary entry. So it doesn't have to be the be all end all. It doesn't have to be the her best work or, or become the vision that she sets out to. She looks at it as a, as a diary entry and that she's, she's capturing that part of her life. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. um, and I like hearing about you guys telling the story of your, you know, your, your region there or your community as a mission statement for your band. Cause that's still tons of room for interpretation in that, but it does give you a guiding light for when you guys need to decide about whether this is something you should do or not. Is exactly. Um, we have a song called Stealing Syrup, which is about the true story, 2012, $18 million maple syrup heist in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Right? And we decided to write it as this like funny bluegrass tune. And we pretend that we did it in the song. 
because how absurd would that be? And now on our Facebook page, if you go to Trent Severn, you'll see that all of our fans leave any crazy heist story in Canada on our webpage. And you'd be surprised how many crazy heist stories there are because yeah. people will steal um, transport trucks, like the trailers. So one day a trailer full of lettuce will go missing. And one day a trailer full of blueberries went missing. And wow. um, it created this this sense of um, hilarious news stories that, that we should be writing songs about all of them. And are, you think um, those trailers are cavorting in the shadows now? I have no idea. I think they're spoiled for sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> where do you offload a trailer full of blueberries? Um, Pancake Maine, Festival? Maine at the brewery. Maine? Okay, okay. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course they know. Um, do you know the song yeah. Great Filling Station Hold Up by Jimmy Buffett? No. Yeah, it's about a couple of guys. It's like, what's the, the Great Filling Station Hold Up got me two good years or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about getting caught trying to rob a filling station. Pretty, pretty bad. But uh, sorry, I digress. No, it's okay. It's really fun. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, that's very cool. And so, again, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you feel like you've been able to find, is there room for themes like that as far as production goes or a studio as well? Or do you feel like that's really the um, purview of an artist and writing? Oh, no, I, I try to carry the idea straight through with the production and also with the presentation of the songs. Stealing Syrup, I had some Quebec footstepping put on it because the heist took place in Quebec and I wanted to have Quebec-style fiddle on the track. Yeah. I wanted it to be authentic to that region. I also um, I wrote a song about Richard Manuel from the band. It's called King of the Background. And uh, Richard Manuel is from Stratford, Ontario and actually played with Dave's dad and... We waited to present the song until we were playing in the church where his funeral was, he- was held. And we wanted to give that song to, to him in, in that place where he sang and grew up singing, right? Yeah, wow. Another song I co-wrote with a man named Bill Lishman. And Bill Lishman is an inventor. And he taught Canada geese how to fly south by following him in his ultralight aircraft. Because if, Oh, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. And he... Basically, if the birds aren't taught to fly south, they don't. It's not an instinct. It's a learned behavior. And so many um, birds like the whooping crane were endangered until he did this research. And so I wrote a song as if I was Bill talking to these birds and realized I should really let him in on it. So I looked him up and called him and we wrote the song together. And then we waited to present it. He was having a book launch at his home in uh, Blackstock, Ontario on Earth Day. And we waited to present the song until that day. That's very cool. But of course you were like, but Bill, listen, you have to understand this one thing. I'll write it with you, but only through email. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, kind of true. I did interview him on on uh, Skype and then he did send me a poem that he had written for the, bo- the birds and then I worked the poem into the song. Very cool. Did mm-hmm. you get the sound of the, the pedaling propeller on the ultralight somehow no. worked into that? No, I didn't. But that actually brings up one thing. If you get the CD version of Portage, which is the most recent Trent Seven record, we collected sounds from all over Canada that were relevant to the songs. And that's what you hear at the beginning of each track. Oh, so very cool. That sounds you like might fun. Hear someone walking in the snow or um, I have a song called Newfound Man, which is about a fellow from Newfoundland. And he recorded the ocean waves on the coast of Newfoundland and they opened the track. And, is it uh, the Newfound Man from Newfoundland? Yeah. Oh, good. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> well, that's cool. I like that. That sounds like some of the things I do with my friends in St. Louis is 
similar in the respect that we have this larger mission about taking borrowing poems from places and reworking them into song oh, and records. Love that. And it just gives you an ability to kind of not ever be stumped, you know, because there's mm-hmm. always something out there you can just borrow from and, and write around. And and I think that that's, that's really cool. And, and it can be hard to, I, it's probably even harder for M to write as this journal where it's like everything has to be some deeply personal expression. And some days maybe you wake up and you're like, I don't feel like expressing myself today. That's, you know? that's right. Like her, she does leave all of that in her solo work. And so do I. And we know when something's relevant to Trent Severn. And it makes it really fun because you just, you'll see something or you'll hear a story and you just instantly know that that's your next song. Yeah, that's cool. Well, very cool. All right. So now how about, um, let's jump back in and geek out again. How about sharing a recording tip hack or secret sauce for the studio, something the rock stars could use on their next session? Oh gosh. Um, okay. Everyone's going to make fun of me, but I use that boom plugin instrument plugin all the time to give myself, I make up a beat uh, that I want to play with instead of a click track Mm -hmm. that has some sort of feel, um, with that's relevant. And then I scrap it. So that's my favorite thing, actually, is that I use the most. <laughs> so Boom is our built-in drum machine in Pro Tools. Um, yeah. I, I, this is going to sound stupid, but I feel like I actually haven't seen that plugin in a minute. I don't remember mm-hmm. if it's uh, – it must still be with every uh, version of Pro Tools. But, oh, but I don't know. The, the takeaway is kind of like – so Boom has some built-in beats that you can press or you program it yourself. Do you like to program the beat or do you like to just sort of find one that's already there and just see if you like the groove of it? Um, sometimes I'll find one that's there. They're pretty helpful. They, they give you, um, BPM ranges that these grooves work in Mm -hmm. and then alter them from there. And yeah, like I always use like the 909 or the retro kit. Like I don't mind that it doesn't sound organic. I just want something different to play with than the click. And that could be very true that my version and my setup is preserved in about 2007 and has never been updated. So (laughs) well, it's organic. It sounds like a genuine 909. That's, that's that's right. And uh, I just put it lower and it just gives me something to play with instead of a click. I totally agree. When I had a session here with uh, these same friends of mine from St. Louis, we had, we wrote a song on the spot and we needed to cut it first. And then I was going to overdub the drums, but rather than, cut it to a click track in Pro Tools, I actually just pulled up a drum machine. We have like a Hammond drum machine, one of these big boxes, mm-hmm. and found a beat that kind of worked, found a tempo, just play that through a guitar speaker and cut that in the room and then just mute it and replace the drums. And that was more fun than trying to play to something that goes beep, 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 you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the same premise. I, probably lots of people do that already. Yeah, but it's a good tip. And, mm-hmm. and it came from you. There you go. All right. So now how about an exciting hardware tool for the studio? Something you really like having that's physical that just makes your sessions go better. Hmm. I've mentioned it before. I love my, my high strung. I love always having a high strung and a banjo and different, a mandolin. I love having different stringed instruments hanging around for mm-hmm. people to pick up. My Avalon, I can't do anything without that. I've got a biodynamic, what is it? An M201 or something that I use on my instruments and I've got a TLM 103 for my cardioid mic. And, uh, I pretty much work with that. I've also got a, Dave's got a Trident strip compressor up there. So those are the four things that I can't live without. Nice. Oh shoot. What was I going to ask you about the, uh, Oh, high string. Would you like to, uh, 
quickly describe what that is to the rock stars? Oh, yeah. It's a six string guitar, but you put the high set of the 12 string set of strings on the guitar. So the top four strings are an octave higher than normal guitar strings. And it really adds this lovely little sparkle to spots in songs. I usually use them on on choruses. Yeah. If it's a nice jangly song, you know. So you might, if you are playing a certain voicing on the regular six string, you might just play the exact same voicing on the high string as a double? Yeah, you could. I really do love finger picking on it. Yeah. I generally use it as a a finger picking thing. I I find that a high string actually has a remarkable amount of low end because we tend to sort of play it quieter and crank up the mic a lot. And so Hmm. sometimes it's got this, it can have a deep tone. Nobody's going to believe me, but (laughs) it does does to me, you know. And then I wanted to, maybe this is digressing too much, but I think you've had experience layering acoustic instruments and trying to fill out a song. You know, you've even self-admittedly overproduced sometimes. What are some cool places to check out when you, when you have, you've written a song and you're playing it on one acoustic guitar and you want to add more strumming, more acoustic stuff. What are some overdubs that you might try, you know, different voicings of the acoustic, the high string, different instruments? What, what are some first places you would go to just kind of fill out the acoustic on the chorus? Um, well, definitely, if it's a picking song, I would definitely put a light strum underneath some of the stuff. I used to stereo everything, like do double takes. like, mm-hmm. um, And I didn't do that a lot on uh, the most recent album. I, I just found that it, I think it's the presence thing that I was talking about with the vocals as well. It just mm-hmm. sat better when I didn't do that. If it's a really strummy, upbeat thing, I will double the strumming guitars. I would definitely go to mandolins and banjos. Banjo probably before anything, if I'm looking to add another stringed instrument. And violin, I work with an amazing fiddle player and violin player. And uh, I love layering up violin parts for sure. How often do you use a capo when you're you're producing? I would say pretty often. Just depends on the song. And sometimes I would play something and open and capo it again and play it. A du- an overdub part with the capo on. Nice. That's kind of yeah. what I was hoping to hear too. I, yeah. I really like that where you, and that was something that was really eye opening to me the first time I saw that. It was like, whoa, wait a minute. You mean you can just add another acoustic guitar, but voice it in a whole different way and have a capo halfway up the neck and play it there? It sounds amazing. Yeah, it does. All right, cool. So um, let's jump to software for a sec. What would you like to share as an exciting software tool? Um, I use Pro Tools and then I have Pro Tools Express on my laptop. So I'll two mix things down if I want to travel with them and overdub, like I said, my friend Graham playing his vibraphone or or different things. Um, I love being really portable. So I love having my my little fast track duo. I bring my uh, TLM 103, a tiny little mic stand. I've recorded some of the backups on our records are recorded in hotel rooms when we're on the road. And so when you're portable, you're monitoring Mm -hmm. in a pair of headphones? I'm monitoring in headphones, yeah. And what headphones are you using for that? Do you have a favorite pair right now? Those, the AKGs with the gold. I I can't deal with anything but them. (laughs) (laughs) And what are some things that you had to get used to learning that it sounded right in the headphones versus the speakers? Do you find that there's you have a tendency to get a certain tone if you got headphones on versus a certain tone if you're recording and listening to speakers or have you just sort of figured it out? I just sort of 
figured it out. I haven't had the luxury to record a lot with being able to monitor in speakers. So I've become really good at monitoring in my headphones. Okay, cool. Um, I mean, obviously you can't record in every hotel room <laughs> um, because of air conditioning systems, things like that. I've definitely learned to, bear, you know, put pillows in front of the doors. And then I always stick the microphone kind of in the curtains, close up the curtains on the window, put the microphone with the back to the curtains. Oh, that's cool. Um, and yeah, just figure, figure that out. I'm, I'm kind of ready to go whenever. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Uh, hotel recording tips. We need a yeah, there you episode go. dedicated to recording, <laughs> not in a studio, you know? Hey, I'm breaking it down. You know, I'm anything's possible. Yeah. All right. Well, so now how about a resource or advice for the business side of doing this? Obviously you've been doing it for a career and not just as a hobby. What would you like to share? Well, I use Google Docs like crazy. I really like having all the lyrics for every song in there. So when I'm producing a vocal, I can make sure I understand all the words, obviously. I always make a song chart. So there's always the songs down the column and the rows, I guess, have the parts that we're going to do. And they get a different color if they're demoed or finalized, I guess. I see. And yeah. I, I don't know. Probably lots of people use use the song chart. It's like DEFCON one through five for your song with different color yeah. schemes. <laughs> yeah. To kind of know where I'm at. And also just for even knowing if the arrangement's done or, um, yeah, I don't, like, I love it when the, the thing is 80% green. I feel like I'm almost done. Yeah. You know? Definitely use that tool. We use Google Docs for everything. Calendar, we just actually use a, one of their sheets, you know, in like an Excel for our calendar and we block out dates in gray that we're not available. So our manager can just book us whenever he wants to. We use that for keeping, we keep track of the hours we put into the band too, to make sure no one's doing too much and things are evening out. Mm -hmm. We also do that in, in sheets. We keep a to-do list in sheets. So I, I would say Google Docs would be my number one tool for keeping myself organized while I get through this thing called the creative life. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let me, um, so that actually is a great answer for the kind of organizational question too. Anything specific about business, just like any advice for people as far as, um, you know, what you've run into trying to make sure you're making a living from recording music? I think that this day and age, you have to be very diverse and look for ways to make what you already know into opportunities. One thing I've done in the past year, I give about two hour sessions on songwriting and production and then sustaining in a creative life. So that has actually helped me sustain my creative life, being hired out for this, yeah. this talk, teaching people how to do that. I think I, I just, I find that I'm doing so many different things and I have to keep them up to a pretty high level to survive and to pay all my bills and to live the life that I want to. And I, yeah. I find it really hard, but it's knowing when to say no, I think really paying attention to when something's taking too much of your time or you don't enjoy it is really important. Also, you know what's best for you. Only you know what's best and a manager or an agent or a label or I, I just really think you got to listen to yourself as as opposed to other people telling you what to do. What are, that's a bunch of great yeah. advice right there. And I really liked hearing you say, take the things you already know and learn how to turn them into opportunities. Because yeah. that's something I'm running into over and over again, where I am, you know, always amazed at that. When you're aware enough of what's going on 
to say, wait a minute, this thing that's happening right now, these people I just met, this thing that's mm-hmm. right there to my right and right there to my left actually are could be fantastic opportunities. And you recognize that and you take advantage of them. It's, it's remarkable how they really do become incredible opportunities. It is true. And I am really guilty of going to somewhere like Summer Nam and meeting 100 people and only following up with two of them. No, me too. <laughs> you know, um, I, I definitely think try to pick, you know, for the week after the or second week after, I think the week after everyone's kind of tired and, and inundated, but pick three people a day to reach out to. That's 15 people. Yeah. I you think know, that- it's not that hard. That's good. And it reminded me yeah. um, that if I go and to say, okay, this week I'm going to Summer Nam, really I'm saying this week and then the week afterwards I'm also going because that's what I need to only do for that week is just follow up with people. Although yeah, maybe you're great. saying, you know, three follow ups in the morning and then so it's not so overwhelming. Yeah. Try to take the overwhelming out of it if you break things down. And it may feel like, well, I don't have just 15 people to follow up with. I've got 40 people to follow up with. Well, if you think of it that way, you're probably going to follow up with five. <laughs> yeah. So I th- I definitely think, yeah, seeing the opportunities around you. Also, really recognize the talents in your friends around you. I've definitely gone years without playing with a couple musicians in town that I now play with on a regular basis that I can't even believe I didn't make a bigger investment in them. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. All right, so let's go to... The last two questions, and these are both hypothetical. Okay. Um, imagine you're starting this all over again, recording particularly, and music, and you need it, you're in a new place, new city, and you needed a, a simple setup to record music with. You needed to find musicians and people to play music with or to record, and you need to make ends meet so that you can survive doing it. You've answered these questions in different ways along the way, but would you like to kind of sum that up right now? What advice would you give about what do you need to record? How are you going to find people to record? And how are you going to keep the lights on? Okay, I've got my laptop and my portable system that I was describing. Doesn't even need power really to run, <laughs> which is amazing. Nice. I'd probably spend a day walking around town and speaking to people. I'd probably inevitably run into buskers, pay attention to whether I think they're good or not, I guess. I'd research where open mics are or the hot spots for, for playing and go introduce myself and, and, uh, try to make some friends making and meet. So I, so I have nothing to work with. Am I living anywhere? <laughs> uh, you, you know, answer that the way you want. Any um, advice well, is good. Well, I guess I think the most immediate way you could make ends meet is, is maybe a deciding on working on a project saying that you're going to work with local musicians and maybe do a crowdfunding like with pledge or even uh, maybe that Patreon would work in that that way where you can, every time you make a song, you sell it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Also, maybe I would go into businesses because the businesses have a little bit more money than the artists to pay. Um, maybe I would go see if they need some advertising work done and uh, recording or hosting some social me- media videos something that I could do with my recording talents and using the local community. Yeah, it's cool. So, uh, you know, in the intro, I talked about how you had done national television commercials and branding an entire radio station. And then we found some YouTube videos where you had done music for uh, Thomas the Train, I think it was. Yeah. And I like that you took your talent of this beautiful singing voice and found all these different opportunities around it for that too as well. Yeah, I did a NASCAR commercial as well on the Speed Network and... uh, 
nice. local radio station was was switching from top hits to country, and I uh, produced them all their stingers. And uh, Dave plays all over them, actually. Oh, Dave cool, comes. cool, right yeah. on. All right, so then um, let's go to the last question: the Wayback Machine. So. We're going to go take the studio way back machine. You go find younger Dana and tap yourself on the shoulder. You turn around and um, what are you doing here? You said, well, I've come to give you this bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What would you tell young Dana who had just hadn't recorded for EMI yet, but was heading into the studio next week? Well, um, I think I would have told myself to just create, 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 and don't be caught up in the final product and move on as quick as you can. I think Paul McCartney didn't write yesterday every day, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think work on that body of work and make sure that, you know, the full thing's the work of art, not the little piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, That life's the work of art, I think. Yeah. It's the process. (laughs) Yeah. The process. And I do wish that I I spent less time second guessing or doubting myself. I just I just feel like I wish I went for it a little tiny bit more, but I'm there now. It's good. Well, I think, you know, the good takeaway from that is we are all going to second guess ourselves and we're all going to doubt ourselves. So yeah. why not just make that happen quickly and get over it? Yeah. And also do more of your um, reflection when the piece is done be- than before it's done. Yeah. I think... I spend too much time reflecting on what I'm going to do. And then when it's done, barely reflecting on it, if that makes any sense. It's almost like being nervous before you go on stage. It might be better to be nervous after you get off and you know you did a bad job and you have to talk to people. Yeah. You, you know, it's about managing that inner talk. Yes. I li- there's, here's the title for your book, um, Reflecting Forward, Managing Your Inner Voice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, I did want to say one other thing that I that I learned recently. I have a, a friend in town that wrote a book called Rest Ethic instead of Work Ethic. He believes that human energy and the energy in your body is very much like an audio waveform. Nice. Um, I like it already. Down, yeah. Up and, so I could relate to it instantly. And, he, and when I was working on um, Portage, I really had a deadline. We wanted to get it out for Canada Day. It was Canada's 150th anniversary this year. And I was just working like a dog and I was not in good shape. And he said, well, why don't you try this? Like work for two and a half to three hours and take a bigger break. Like take two hours, go back for three hours, take three hours off, go back for four hours. So then I ended up working nine to 12, two to five, seven to midnight mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I never felt exhausted because I gave myself a chance to, you know, at dinner time, I actually ate and went and laid down and slept and woke up and worked another four or five hours. So it was riding the daily wave of um, energy, like the audio form, as well as the, those weekend waves when you need a full day off kind of thing. I like that. So yeah. are you familiar with the Pomodoro technique of working? No. This, this is something that is kind of espoused a lot in the blogging world where it says you set a timer and you work for 20 minutes and then you take a five minute break and and you get up out of your chair, walk around, then you come back and you focus for another 20 minutes. But I like your description. It's like to hell with the Pomodoro technique. Let's try like the watermelon technique. Let's just sit down and focus for three hours solid and go take a good quality two hour break and then come back later. Yeah, I, it really worked for me. It really um, gave me that that energy at the end of the project that I needed to get through. Yeah. Well, Dana, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. 
tell the listeners how they can find you and follow you and, and go check out your music. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be on the show. Um, you can find me at DanaManning.com. On Facebook, I think I'm Dana Manning Music. On Twitter, I'm Dana Manning. And Instagram, I'm Dana Manning. And we do have uh, SoundCloud for Trent Seven, where you can hear the records that I produce there. And then all of my music that we talked about is available for purchase and listening on my website, DanaManning.com. All right. So Rockstars Dana is D-A-Y-N-A. And Trent Severn is S-E-V-E-R-N, correct? That's right. Okay, yep. cool. Cool spelling. Well, Dana, again, thank you so much. And it's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to um, seeing you play some music live and just seeing you around the studio again. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Can't wait to see you again. All right. Cheers. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.